Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we talk about the post office with Dr. Richard R. John, professor of history and communications in the Columbia Journalism School at Columbia University. He teaches courses on the history of communications, capitalism, and American political development. And all of these factors have played out in part via the post office. The U.S. Postal Service has found itself in focus as the 2020 presidential election nears after reports surfaced that the head of the agency had moved forward with a plan to take sorting machines offline and remove blue postal boxes, potentially jeopardizing the ability of the post office to deliver ballots from voters to the polls in time to be counted. Even though these removals have now been suspended, some are concerned that the damage might already be done. With Dr. John, I explore the history, role, and significance of the U.S. Post Office and the tension between the U.S. Post Office as a service and the desire by some to treat it as a business. You wrote a a very prescient op-ed for the Washington Post back in April about the importance of funding the post office. And of course, at that moment, I had no idea, maybe you did, but I had no idea that we would then see postal sorting machines going offline, et cetera, that the president would then target the post office in this way. When you wrote that in April, why did you feel the need to speak up on behalf of the post office in that moment? We were in a COVID uh, mode. The country had shut down and I was living in Manhattan and and, and, uh, wasn't going anywhere. So we were thinking about who does the government support, who does the government not support in a crisis. And it struck me as very strange that we were bailing out cruise ships, we were bailing out airlines, we were bailing out bowling alleys, all kinds of businesses were getting bailed out. And yet lawmakers were hesitant to bail out the post office. That got me to wondering why anyone could think the post office was less important than a cruise ship line uh, or even an airline. And that got me to uh, just ruminating on the many ways in which our understanding of the post office has been distorted by this presumption that it's a business, ordinary business. It isn't an ordinary business. Lawmakers have disputed the um, characterization post office as an ordinary business from the 1790s right through the 1960s. And when they wrote the the act for USPS in 1970, they they kept those presumptions alive. So it's not an ordinary business. It's a service. It's a public service. Nancy Pelosi said so uh, recently in the House, and that's absolutely right. And that's a good thing. Businesses are important, uh, but services are important too. And they're not necessarily the same. And one is not interchangeable with the other. So that was the impetus for it. And then I I wanted to try to explain to an audience of Americans who have not really thought about some of the ways in which the post office has shaped and does shape everyday life, including commerce. (laughs) It's very important for commerce, advertising, parcels, uh, small business, big business, relying on the post office to get to their customers and to get their necessary supplies. Uh, that, That is not always as well understood as it should be. And I felt that I had something to say because I had written about what the founders thought. And I, I'm rather old-fashioned in that view, in that I do believe that we should pay some attention to what the men and women who established this country believed. And they certainly uh, had a high regard 
for the civic mandate of the post office and linking Americans together. What does the post office mean to the U.S.? I'm asking that question in a cultural context. The American post office has a relationship to the American people that is longstanding, symbiotic with core values, including democracy, volunteerism, commerce. It's different from relationship in other countries. Why is it distinctive? Well, it's in the Constitution. After the enactment of the Constitution, Second Congress, lawmakers got together and they recognized that they needed to change the basic assumptions about the relationship between the government and the governed. The first Congress, the time of the ratification, presumption was that the government and the governed would interact when lawmakers went home and met with their constituents face to face. You'd be deliberating in private. You'd work out what the laws were. You'd take policy stands. And then you'd return and talk about it with your constituents. 1792, James Madison and George Washington, so they're in different political parties. Washington, of course, was president. Madison and the House, they came to the consensus that this wasn't working. That we need to find a way to link the government and the governed more directly citizenry and the seat of power. We need to have a mechanism to circulate information about public affairs on a regular basis throughout the country. That is to say, from the capital to the hinterland and from the hinterland back to the capital. Because the country was vast. The mechanism was the post office and the vehicle, newspapers. So beginning in 1792, lawmakers admitted newspapers into the mail at a very low cost, almost no difference whether you're sending it a short distance or a long distance. Merchants paid for everybody's access to information on public affairs. That's one provision of the 1792 Act, the civic mandate. Second provision is Congress keeps control over the designation of new routes. By keeping control over the designation of new routes, expand the network very rapidly. So you asked me, how is this institution related to the American people? It's an enlightenment project to make possible the circulation of information that is absolutely essential for self-government. And that's why the institution is so important. And that's different from other countries. Now, it's changed a lot since the 1790s. It's no longer important for the circulation of newspapers, but the basic idea that it's going to link government and governed, and it's going to link citizens with each other in an enormous country remains the same. You know, I'm a former journalist and now I teach journalism. And so I always talk about and I've always understood the power and the role of journalism. And it's mentioned in the First Amendment. And but I've never considered how the post office facilitated that, or, or, or that that was a very deliberate move on the part of our founders and our first government? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, Americans have heard of the First Amendment, 1791. James Madison, key figure. For the first 130 years, First Amendment is much less important in shaping public life than the Post Office Act of 1792. There's no First Amendment jurisprudence until the First World War. Not a single First Amendment case. We always hear about the First Amendment. And here's why that might be a problem. The First Amendment is a limit, a check 
on federal government. It says you're not to do something. Post Office Act of 1792 creates a mechanism to facilitate the circulation of information. It is a tribute to positive government. And as such, it's often forgotten. We forget that we had by far the biggest communication network in the world in 1828, subsidized by merchants facilitating the circulation of information on public affairs. We also forget, here's a provision of the 1792 Act that's in alignment with the Bill of Rights. We have a provision in that Act that it is illegal to open anyone's letters. So the presumption of privacy dates from 1792. Now, until relatively recently, the Post Office Act 1792 was not in our textbooks, that we didn't understand that you need to create an infrastructure in order to make possible self-government. Government's necessary for self-government. It's a paradox. But that's what James Madison and George Washington understood. There were other public figures, but those two really highlight the different conceptions. Madison's vision for the Post Office Act of 1792 was civic. I think the government and the governed. Washington's is logistical. Washington, as a military veteran who'd been active in the Western military theater, recognized that if you do not have a mechanism to circulate on a regular basis information from the seat of power to the frontier, that the inhabitants in the frontier might well be predisposed to follow another leader, to break off to not be identified with the United States. If you're living in Kentucky or Tennessee, other side of the mountains, why should you regard pronouncements coming from the capital as important? Well, if you're getting a weekly fill-up of news from back east, you're more likely to be identified with the project. You're going to be part of the imagined community that was and is the United States. Wow. Wow. Of course, things have changed a lot since that time. We're now a much, uh, we're now a cohesive set of states uh, and territories. Well, you know, somewhat cohesive. And um, we've moved into this space, one, where the idea of spreading information in this way to cultivate loyalty is, is not necessarily as important as it once was. And two, we're in an era now where for several decades, the concepts of neoliberalism have sort of taken hold in a lot of circles and the idea that, well, shouldn't we apply market-based mechanisms or lenses to things like the post office or like my beloved journalism? So I'm wondering if you can address a little bit about how the post office is viewed uh, now and where you think maybe these changes should have taken place and where you think maybe we're wading into dangerous waters? Well, we know something about how the post office is viewed. A recent survey by Pew puts its favorability rating as over 90%. So it's the most highly regarded uh, agency of the federal government, more highly regarded than the courts, more highly regarded than the Park Service, certainly more highly regarded than Congress or the presidency. <clears throat> Americans love the post office. Americans have been very sympathetic to the post office for a long time, but only one short period in our history in which there was a serious campaign to what we would now call privatized post office. That was in the 1840s. And at that time, it was hard for the post office to contract with railroads and steamboats. 
private carriers undercut the post office on East Coast uh, inner city routes, and revenue dropped substantially. Congress responded by lowering the rates, tightening uh, regulations, and by lifting the constraint that the post office should be self-supporting. The post office was not intended to raise revenue. Uh, That was debated in the 1790s and rejected. Beginning in 1851, Congress sanctions it actually becoming a line item on the budget. So it would cost money every year, and that remained case until the 1960s. So it's an affront to neoliberals because it's not supposed to work so well, and it works very well. In the 1880s, it was much more common to contend that the government should take over Western Union, telegraph giant, run it like the post office, then the, the Western Union should take over the post office. No one wanted Western Union to take over the post office. Everyone knew that would be a disaster. Since Americans often have direct contact with the post office on a daily basis, and their congressmen are uh, solicitous to their opinions, the post office uh, has been run like a service and not a business. That is to say, the postal principle enunciated in the late 19th century, you would circulate information throughout the country uh, independent of cost. Sending a letter from New York to Brooklyn is the same as sending a letter from New York to San Francisco. So why are these issues coming up now? How are things different today than they were when, when the post office was created and, and when it was later codified as a service? Uh, there is today a, a small political movement, very well-funded, of libertarians, who believe that the post office should be privatized. And they've got the ear of the current presidential administration. This is very unusual because it doesn't have a mass constituency. But they're wealthy people who want to fund think tanks in order to uh, promote a basically radical utopian agenda. They're always radical utopians, and the radical utopians today are libertarians. I'm a more conservative, and I'm concerned about radical utopians, but there you have it. They want to privatize, and they believe that the market can solve all of our problems. Now, let's just do the thought experiment. Say you actually end the tight control over the post office that's exercised by Congress. And you sort of say, okay, we're going to bid it out. And the company can come in and can say, I'm going to do this, this, and that. A couple of things could happen. One, company will go back to Congress and say, well, wait a minute, Kansas is pretty expensive. We don't want to deliver to Kansas anymore. And then they'll come back and say, well, you know, we really didn't think this was such a good deal. We want to go into another line. Uh, 1870s, two of the biggest package carriers were Wells Fargo and American Express. Wells Fargo and American Express are with us today, but they're not carrying packages anymore. Post office isn't like that. The post office is in the business of circulating information and goods throughout the length and breadth of the country and around the world forever. It's in the Constitution, and that's what it does today. There are certain services that just are not well performed by business. Yeah, and I think we've already seen this play out with hospitals, right? If you're privatizing hospitals, then all of a sudden it becomes... Uh, fiscally unsound to have a hospital in a rural area, even though those people need health care just as much as I do in San Francisco. Hospitals should be about keeping people healthy, not making money for the investors of hospitals. The same is true with the post office. Let me give you another example. The 1950s, we built interstate highways across the country. Some of the interstate highways have a lot of traffic, and some of them don't. Well, let's privatize them and just eliminate the interstate highway in Kansas. You know, not that many people drive on it. The folks who live in Kansas moved there with the expectation they would have access to basic facility transportation. They'd have that infrastructure. 
It's the same with the post office. You move into a town, you expect you're going to be able to do business through the post office. Uh, We don't say we're going to shut down the interstate highways. We don't say we're going to shut down the post office. But there are a few radical libertarians who have this vision that we can privatize. And that's not a vision that's been popular in our history. And I frankly don't believe it's a vision that's going to succeed with regard to the post office because of the nature of its relationship to the government and because of the enormous size of the country. And there are a good number of Americans who are living in that part, those parts of the country. Uh, those are parts of the country where it may not well be profitable for a mail delivery service to set up shop. And if you're in that part of the country, you may be in danger of being cut off. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, it's this small, well-funded movement, and and yet it's it's got some traction because it has access to people who are now uh, wielding the levers of power. And so we have someone, for example, who's head of the Postal Service, who's made some choices. Luckily, you know, many people have spoken up about them, and he recently said this week, oh, I won't do that anymore, but is he going to roll back? And now he's going to speak in front of both houses of Congress, which is great. But we are actually seeing potentially some damage being done in a moment, not just when we have an election coming up, but when we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, because it might be a small group, but they have the access at this point to make things happen. We're talking about Louis DeJoy's tenure. The changes, that is to say, the scrapping of sorting machines and the dismantling of blue mailboxes. These are initiatives that predated DeJoy, according to the accounts that I have read. And they have been perhaps speeded up or they've just gotten attention. You don't always pay attention when someone takes down a blue mailbox, but when presumption is that's going to interfere with the operations of the post office, that gets people focused on you. So that's one question. But uh, the larger question is, does DeJoy want to do his job? He's a logistics expert. He's been in, in the business of moving uh, goods for 30 years. He's been very successful. He's self-made. The crux of the issue seems to be overtime with the unions and basically work, work regimen inside the organization. And we'd hope that he's capable. Uh, he's certainly demonstrated in the past and that he's a patriot and that he cares about the election and cares about the country. And the problem here is that until recently, he didn't make public statement to that effect. He has recently, and he will be uh, grilled by Congress on Friday. That should help us uh, get a better sense of where he stands. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about the history, role, and significance of the U.S. Post Office with Dr. Richard R. John, professor of history and communications in the Columbia Journalism School at Columbia University. But the issue, it's not simply Louis DeJoy. But it's also a president of the United States who makes the outrageous statement that the post office is a joke, which is insulting to the half million people who work for the post office, and who has also contended, saying the quiet part out loud, that if everybody votes and if the state secretaries of state makes it easy for everybody to vote, that the Republicans will lose. That, that's not the kind of assertion that we're accustomed to hearing from presidents. And that has politicized the post office in a way that's very unusual in our history, if almost unique. I have to go back to the 1830s to find a similar juncture when the president took a very controversial stand with regard to post office. 1970, Richard Nixon is president. He's confronted with a wildcat strike in the post office, the biggest wildcat strike in American history. If there was ever a moment when a president who is, uh, let's say, controversial with East Coast media elite, 
and wants to blow off some steam, uh, that would be a moment that you could imagine a president would be exasperated. But they negotiate with the wildcatters, and in fact, they admit that they lost. And the postal workers score a major victory. Shortly thereafter, the USPS is established. So that's an example of how presidents in the past have done with a crisis. Andrew Jackson in 1835, when confronted with abolitionist campaign to circulate anti-slavery tracts throughout the post office. He responds in a, in a sort of hot-headed manner. He says that Congress should make it illegal to circulate abolitionist literature in the mail. Now, that uh, outrages uh, two groups, the teeny, teeny, teeny number of libertarians, uh, maybe just one in Congress, and the much larger number of pro-slavery apologists. Because the pro-slavery apologists recognize that if the federal government bans the circulation of a particular kind of literature in the mail, it can also require or encourage or foster the circulation of that kind of literature. So you didn't get that law. But there's an instance in which the president kind of went off the reservation, made a radical statement that he believed was principled and that he believed was in the best interest of the country, but that caused a certain amount of pushback. There are many other examples in which presidents have made controversial statements about the post office. It's a little bit, it's like apple pie and motherhood. Everybody loves the post office. So you, you write your grandmother, the letters go through, you get your Christmas card, and that's about the end. Now, you brought up something earlier in our conversation that I want to jump back to, and it was the idea of teaching and not teaching our history, in that the Postal Act of 1792 has not been taught in our K-12 history textbooks. I certainly didn't learn about it. And yet it's very pivotal. It was an important moment in time. And the idea that here we are today, and whenever we don't learn about something in our history, we have a real hard time grappling with it when it comes up. And, and certainly this is not a show about the Black Lives Matter movement. But the idea that we don't learn about the specific history of how we treated Native peoples, how we treated slaves, is causing us some problems today. And here we are, having some conversations about the Postal Service, and for myself, learning about, wow, I wish we would look at that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about the idea of what we choose to teach and, and how that can affect us and impact us as we live our lives as citizens of the U.S. Well, it seems to me there are three ways you can tell the story of American history. You can tell the story by focusing on heroic individuals, often bearers of cherished values. You can talk about groups, and the groups could be Native Americans, the groups could be women, the groups could be frontiersmen, uh, and you can talk about institutions. And what we really sell our young people short on is talking about institutions. Now, admittedly, there will be a unit on the Constitution, or we would hope, and that's an institutional question. There might be a unit on a civil rights movement of the 1960s, which would focus on voting rights or the Great Society. But American history tends to be taught as a story of ideals borne by heroic individuals and groups that are uh, in conflict or are coming together for a common goal. And that makes it very hard, I think, for young people to understand the role of institutions, including infrastructure. Infrastructure is a big, ugly word. It's often considered to be dull. Who wants to talk about sewage? Who wants to talk about grain storage? Uh, but it's quite important. Until there is a sea change in thinking about our nation's history so that young people are encouraged to ask basic questions about where their food comes from, uh, who makes the clothes they're wearing, how does the clothing they wear get from where it's made to them, and how does it get from, if it's a natural fabric, how does it get from the field to the factory and then from the factory to the consumer? 
until we start asking those questions, uh, I think we're going to continue to have an impoverished understanding of our past. So why do you think we approach history this way? Why is it hard for us to view history through an institutional lens? Is it to keep this narrative going that privileges some and not others? These are not only questions about economic processes, but there are also questions about political processes. Uh, why is it that certain groups have been disfranchised? Uh, how is it that uh, we've never had a dictator who's challenged the elect electoral process? That is to say, we had an election even in 1864 in the middle of the Civil War. These kinds of basic questions are often not asked because Americans assume that we are a fortunate, blessed nation, that somehow the vicissitudes that confront other peoples in the world don't confront us, and that therefore we can focus on kind of adjusting relationships between groups, or we can talk about heroic individuals who inspire us as well they should, and we don't talk about the basic questions about institutional dimensions of our lives, how these institutions shape who we are, indeed make it possible for us to regard ourselves as individuals. Without the institutional framework, you couldn't be an individualist. And as a consequence, topics like environmental degradation, topics like pollution, topics like uh, the, the spoilation of the landscape are topics that are seen as sort of peripheral to the main story, which is about individuals and groups. But that's going to require quite a change in orientation on the part of teachers, uh, educators who write our history books. And it's also going to require, I, I think, a, a more realistic understanding on the part of the citizenry. The kind of utopian radicalism of neoliberals, as you've mentioned, obscures all these institutional questions because they are uncomfortable. And because if you don't think about them, then you can uh, sort of, in, in a manner of a wish fulfillment dream, just assume that the market will solve all of your problems. And that's a very dangerous and misleading assumption, but it's one that's quite pervasive. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think that is so well said about the way we view history and how that can come to harm us and the idea of American exceptionalism. What drew you to explore the post office in its history more fully? Well, uh, we're back now in the 1980s, and I was pursuing a PhD in the history of American civilization at Harvard, and I was very interested in bureaucracy. I was interested in bureaucracy because it was said the United States was born in an age when there was no bureaucracy. 20th century, I was the son of an aerospace engineer. I understood the military-industrial complex at first hand, and I knew we were living in a highly bureaucratized, militarized world. So how do we get from the one to the other? So that was the initial premise. What did Americans think about bureaucracy when bureaucracy first emerged? So I decided to pick a bureaucracy. And my mentor at the time, a very celebrated historian named David Donald, gave a lecture in which he said the post office was the first bureaucracy. So I said, aha, I bet you a lot of people had opinions about the post office because they have opinions about it today. It's not that you, know, you interact with it. And I bet I could find what those opinions were in the past. So that's how I got to the topic. And then once you dig in on almost any topic, in which there's a large paper trail, you just become fascinated by the characters and the dramas and the 
kind of peculiar issues that agitated an earlier generation that aren't at the foremost of our consciousness today. Wow. I love that. Thank you so much. Where do you hope to see things go from this moment? We are an imagined community of millions of people who will never meet. Uh, and the post office is one of the institutions that uh, brings us together, not only in a tangible way that we circulate information, but the presence of mail carriers and the trucks is a unifying force that reminds us that we are all in this together, that we're part of a common project, it's in our DNA, and that we should do what we can to ensure that the proud heritage of the past is, uh, is sustained. That's a beautiful way to end. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. My thanks to Dr. Richard R. John, Professor of History and Communications in the Columbia Journalism School at Columbia University, who spent some time talking with me about the history, role, and significance of the U.S. Post Office. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.